Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, Slate listeners. Do us a favor and help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of March 9th, 2020. On this week's show, The Wall Street Journal's Ben Cohen will join us to talk about the escalation of coronavirus-fueled cancellations in sports and how upcoming events like March Madness might be affected. We'll also interview Cohen about his new book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. And we'll discuss a week of chaos in New York basketball as Spike Lee beefed with Knicks owner James Dolan and the Nets fired their coach, Kenny Atkinson. The multi-beef week in New York. Beeves joining me in our DC studio, Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. There, Stefan, looking forward to being socially distanced from you in the weeks to come. We're about, what, four feet away from each other? I think that's a good distance. <laughs> As I back away from the microphone, I welcome in from Palo Alto, man that we're always socially distanced from, geographically, but not emotionally, Joel Anderson. He is. Slate staff writer, host of Slow Burn season three, will not be appearing at South by Southwest. This happened since uh, last week's show. Yeah, man. We had plans to be in Austin, and then we canceled. We canceled before they canceled the whole thing. And I think that's really what tipped it over. Classic, you can't, you, classic, you can't right. fire me, I quit scenario. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. The only person mad are a few of my aunts, but I think they'll get over it. It's sad, though. We would have loved yeah. to have you at South by Southwest. Stefan, what would you like to tell us about the state of coronavirus in America and in sports? Well, one event that wasn't canceled was the Scrabble tournament I played in in Charlottesville over the weekend. 22 hardy, brave Scrabblers gathered with clean tiles at my admonition. <laughs> you were the one telling people to clean their tiles? I was. Bleach? Yeah, put them in the sink. Someone suggested bleach. Soap, sink, wash those bags. Those things are skanky, man. People don't clean them. From skanky tile bags to where are you going to take us? All right. Well, we talked about coronavirus on the show last week, and whatever we said, it wasn't alarmist enough. (laughs) On Sunday, a day before it was supposed to start, the big Indian Wells tennis tournament in California was called off. More and more events were being held without fans. Juventus beat Inter Milan 2-0 in an empty stadium in Turin on Sunday. Then on Monday, Paris police announced that the Champions League round of 16 game this week between PSG and Borussia Dortmund would be played in an empty stadium. The French League is going largely fanless for at least a month. The Premier League in England is preparing to do the same. That reality is now reaching America over the weekend. An NCAA Division III men's basketball tournament game was played in an empty arena in Baltimore. And according to a report from the Athletics, Shams Charania, the NBA has told teams to get ready to play in cavernous buildings. LeBron James was asked about this on Sunday, and here's what he had to say. We play games without the fans? Yeah. No, it's impossible. I ain't playing. <laughs> I ain't got the fans in the crowd. That's what I play for. I play for my teammates. Play for I play for the fans. That's what it's all about. So if I show up to an arena and ain't no fans in there, 
I ain't playing, so they can do what they want to do. <laughs> Thanks, right. everyone. Appreciate Thanks it. <laughs> I ain't never played the game without no fans. Ever. I started playing ball. Ha ha ha. Right after that, a reporter noted that this has happened in Europe, but the reporter cited riots and stuff, apparently unaware of the latest news. To that, LeBron replied, this ain't Europe. Bad news for LeBron. The coronavirus does not care about American exceptionalism. Ben Cohen, you've been covering this stuff. LeBron seemed to forget that most fans don't watch games in arenas, but on television. And the networks pay the league a lot of money to broadcast games. But second, isn't the right answer here? Like everyone else, I'm concerned about the spread of this virus and we as players will do whatever is in the best interest of public safety. Well, I am not LeBron's media advisor. However, uh, I do think you can make the case that maybe the best thing that LeBron could do to service fans is play basketball for people to watch when we are stuck in quarantine at some point in the next few weeks. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that players are, you know, it's like all of us, it (laughs) dawns on us at a different pace and at a different time what's happening here. And I think what you said about American exceptionalism in your intro is exactly right, is that growing up here, you think that things that afflict places around the world can't necessarily happen here, whether it's war, whether it's disease. And the spread of this virus is showing us that it doesn't respect borders. It doesn't care how important your game is. It's coming for us, Stefan. It's going to be here. And the fact that Indian Wells was canceled was a really big shift. This is the fifth major in tennis. It is a tournament that has enormous financial ramifications for players. Not that we're going to necessarily you know, cry for professional tennis players, but these touring professionals, this is a huge amount of their year. It can make or break your year. And it's also a tournament put on by Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle, who built this tennis like paradise is what they call it this enormous facility it's a huge deal to just turn around and cancel it not just empty stands but not having it at all and ben this shows i think what's going to start happening if this tennis tournament this huge event can be canceled then i think that really opens up a possibility that anything could be canceled in american sports I think that's right. And reporting on the coronavirus for the last few weeks, to me, has almost felt like watching the Titanic head for this iceberg in slow motion. Like we know it's coming and we know it's going to be very painful and cause severe disruptions here. And yet I don't think people have really wrapped their minds around it yet. Like this has happened in Asia and Europe already. They're playing in front of empty stadiums. Like they have canceled games and there is nothing about the United States or American exceptionalism that makes us immune from this. I was talking to my colleague, Josh Robinson, who covers soccer for the journal in Europe and is based in Paris. And he was telling me like PSG and Dortmund getting canceled. I mean, PSG has Neymar and Mbappe, right? I mean, these are huge international superstars. What he told me was that, you know, there were 45,000 people who are coming to this match. And there are people in Paris who buy season tickets for PSG simply for the home Champions League matches, right? Like they're not going to watch PSG beat up on, you know, bad French soccer teams. They're going to watch PSG play Liverpool and Dortmund and the teams that they will play in the Champions League. So this is a huge deal. And from what we've seen, Asia and Europe appear to be like two weeks to a month ahead of the United States. And it just would not surprise me at all to see these types of drastic 
measures coming here at what appears to be like maybe the worst time of the sports calendar for it to happen, right? The NCAA tournament tips off in 10 days. We have the Masters, we have the Boston Marathon, we have the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs. The the Major League Baseball season opens. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I don't think it would be as a huge deal if baseball were to play like an 120-game season instead of 162 games. However, like, what does the NBA do? The playoffs are about to start. Like, we don't know if games will be postponed or canceled or, like, if Josh's beloved Pelicans will get to the eight seed, if, if they're not allowed to play. I mean, these are not like the most important matters in the world right now, but for the leagues themselves, there are these really thorny competitive issues that still have to be worked out. And I don't think anyone really knows how they will be worked out. Well, to be clear, the PSG Dorman game is going to be played. It's just not going to be played in front of a crowd. So Joel, I think the question for the NCAA now as March Madness comes and for the NBA and every other league is, do we cancel games? Do we play them not in front of a crowd, despite what LeBron says? Like, how do you feel about just this phenomenon of playing games with no fans in the arena? Yeah, we sort of talked about this before. Like, at this point in American history, games are largely TV product. Is that a fair characterization to say that it's not a, something that you tend to experience in person at the stadium? So, Maybe this is a look at what the future is, because we've heard some of the ideas that, you know, stadiums and arenas are going to be smaller in the future and that maybe athletes will be playing on a soundstage and it'll be a, a largely television product that we'll see that way. And maybe this is sort of a glimpse into that future. Like maybe, you know, we have an opportunity to see what it might look like if only a hundred essential staff are there and and they're putting on a TV show, essentially, right? I think LeBron's intent, to go back to his comments, are it's a nice one. I play for the fans. That's what I care about. I get revved up when I go into an arena and I hear everybody cheering. And that's a wonderful sentiment. But the reality is that, again, back to this idea of American exceptionalism, this has happened before in Europe and on very rare occasions in the United States. It's happened in Europe largely because of fan violence and racism and punishment for teams to deprive them of revenue and deprive fans of the opportunity to watch games. And in the United States, it's happened on very rare occasions, usually because of natural disasters. And in the one case in Baltimore, a Major League Baseball game a few years ago was canceled because of rioting in the city. So I think what's going to happen, Ben, in if it hasn't already, especially right after LeBron's comments, is that players in every sport are going to be getting a memo from management, from their team presidents, and from leagues explaining the severity of the situation and what they, as spokesmen for the league, need to do. And when it comes to the NCAAs, Josh, you brought up, and Ben, you've been talking to people, I imagine, at the NCAA, there's a second layer of concern here, and that's travel. Universities are clamping down on what its employees are going to be allowed to do, attending conferences, doing anything formal on campus. So will universities allow teams to travel to play in league tournaments or in the NCAAs in the coming weeks? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. I hadn't thought about that, but it's true. I was at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference over the weekend, and it went off without a hitch with 3,500 people there hours after MIT banned gatherings of more than 150 people. So all of this is happening very quickly and in real time. My colleague at the journal, Louise Radnovsky, talked to Brian Hainline, the, the chief medical officer of the NCAA over the weekend. He thinks a worst case scenario is that it's played behind closed doors. So it sounds for now, as of Monday morning, that the NCAA is not planning to cancel the tournament entirely. 
which might be great for us if we are stuck at home watching TV in a few days and like have an excuse to watch Thursday and Friday of the NCAA tournament. But one of the curious things I think about the tournament that makes it a little bit different from the NBA is that the tournament is played at neutral sites, right? Mm -hmm. They're not home crowds. The NBA playoffs, like you, the, the whole point of the regular season is to try to get home court advantage for the playoffs and to get a game seven at home. And if there are no fans there, that takes away the edge of home court. So these are trivial matters, right? Like it's worth pointing this out, like whether or not the Los Angeles Lakers have a home game in the Western Conference semifinals in two months is not what anyone is really spending their time thinking about. But it does sort of cut to the core of sports. And it's not quite an existential issue, but it's a really tricky problem that I think smart people are going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about. I was interested to learn that the NCAA has a chief medical officer. That was news to me. I think it was also Brian Burke, the ESPN analytics guy on Twitter, saying and understanding that this was kind of glib, that it'll be interesting laboratory if there are no fans in stands. It'll be a test of home field advantage and how it actually is derived. Because I, I think the best research shows that the reason that home field advantage exists to the extent that it does is the influence that it has on referees or umpires from the home crowd. And so would refs and umpires still like know where they are geographically and feel compelled to give uh, the home team good calls, even if fans aren't yelling at them? Also, if Bill Raftery yells onions in an empty arena, will anyone cry? <laughs> These are the questions that try men's souls. But Joel, like NCAA chief medical officer, again, a test of how much the NCAA actually cares about student welfare, we'll say. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I live right around the corner from Stanford and Stanford has canceled classes on campus, you know, through the end of this quarter, which, you know, amounts to like essentially another two weeks. But within the institutions of higher education, they're already thinking about the health of the, their students and like what the risks are in terms of putting them in a situation where there may be, you know, a potential for infection. Meanwhile, we're talking for the athletes, we're saying, well, hey, man, we just got to figure out a way to get you guys to play. How can we make this happen instead of what might be best for them as athletes? And some of that is, you know, they don't have a union. They don't have anybody necessarily advocating for their best interests, right? To your point, Ben, you made a, a good point that, man, that March Madness, like, nobody gives a damn about the fans. Like, you watch those games, there's barely anybody. I, you know, I covered a regional here last year. There's hardly anybody in those arenas. You won't notice anything if you're watching the games on TV because there's barely anybody in those stands for most of the time anyway, right? The neutral site games are played in NBA arenas, essentially, right? But the mm -hmm. thing that's really interesting to think about is, will they play the Final Four in a football stadium in Atlanta, which already is problematic, right? Like, mm -hmm. we've seen that playing in a dome that seats 100,000 people does not always lead to the prettiest basketball. Now, what if you do that in a dome for 100,000 people in which the 100,000 people are not allowed to show up, right? Like, would they just shift the, the, the Final Four in Atlanta to the Hawks arena? Like, what exactly they would do here? You know, I, I do think you're right. Like, there are not a ton of fans. However, like, we're getting to a point where bringing 20,000 people together, like, is not the greatest idea from a medical standpoint. And so um, I, I, I do think there are really hard decisions for the NCAA. So it's a good thing that the NCAA has a great history of making really hard decisions. <laughs> well, if we go back to the NBA, I mean, we ask players, they're fairly compensated, and so it's a totally different calculus, but they play on Christmas for our 
entertainment. We ask them to be away from their families to entertain us when we're with our families. And Stefan, you were saying, right, that this is a service that athletes can provide to people if they're at home, stuck, and can't go out. Like, this is something that will be kind of a needed tonic or balm for the American people as they're stuck at home hating uh, their uh, you know loved ones and significant others. And I think that's the message that they're going to be getting this week <laughs> and next week, that there has to be a united front here. The players have unions. Players are compensated. Players will be expected to play. LeBron James just can't say, I'm not playing. I mean, I'd like to see how Adam Silver, the commissioner, would respond to LeBron James effectively going on strike because he's not playing in an arena filled with fans in the middle of a pandemic. I think he'll get the message. And also, just this notion of exceptionalism, I think we should end there. I think there was a note in your journal piece, Ben, about when San Francisco puts up this notice saying no more large gatherings at the Chase Center, the fancy new arena in San Francisco, the Warriors have a game with 18,000 people the next day. So Indian Wells is canceled in the Coachella Valley in California, but different places are having different responses. And when I think you see NBA teams or MLS teams in Seattle defying the local rules and the best advice about what should be done, there is this sense, I think, among the general public how serious really is this. And I think it's that sports teams do think they're different or they're special and that they should play by different rules. To be clear, San Francisco's guidance is only a recommendation for now, right? To cancel or postpone large gatherings. However, the Warriors have a game Tuesday night in Chase Center that will be interesting to see what they happen. I thought the most interesting thing that happened on Saturday was that uh, after the Warriors released that Steph Curry was out with an illness on Saturday night, there was so much panic that they had to issue this second press release saying that he was tested and he was diagnosed with influenza A. Like this whole press release saying Steph Curry has the flu and it's not coronavirus, which is excellent news if you like watching Steph Curry play basketball. But I thought was uh, a really interesting sign of the times that just the fact that they had to release a second press release saying that this is flu. Like we still do get flu. We get colds, right? Just in the course of doing this segment, I realized I had tickets to a concert at the Chase Center then two Saturdays from now. And I, I realized I have to figure out, will they be allowing us to show up to that thing? So Keep us posted. One final note. Johns Hopkins lost to Penn State Harrisburg in the empty gym. Home gym, 104 to 96 in double overtime. Ooh. First piece of data. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, Priceline. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. One of the greatest hot streaks I have ever seen came in 2009 in a game between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Milwaukee Bucks. Yes, we're going to talk about LeBron James again. We're obsessed. That night, a 24-year-old LeBron scored 16 points in two minutes. I want you to listen to how that streak ended. Here's the call. One of the great shooting displays we've seen. He's got 39. My goodness. L train is owning the Bradley Center. He's going to have another heat check. Watch. He's going to heat check it. Yeah, I know. Goes up. Yes. It's heat check time. It is not fair. LeBron James single-handedly taking over this ballgame. Wear them out, L train. Make them fly, uncle. I love that video so much. We'll link to it on our show page. But we can all relate to this. Joel at a track meet for 10-year-olds. Stefan in his tile bag. We've all had the feeling we could do no wrong. Every move we made was the right one. We were in the zone. We had the hot hand. In Joel's case, the hot foot. In 1985, the scholars Tom Gilovich, Robert Vallone, and Amos Tversky They published a paper arguing that everything we thought we knew about streakiness was wrong. It was called The Hot Hand in Basketball on the Misperception of Random Sequences. They argued that what we thought were hot streaks were actually just random noise, that the hot hand did not exist. That was statistical canon for three decades, but it's not anymore. In our new understanding of the hot hand, or in the interest of humility, our new possible understanding of the possible hot hand has lots of implications for how we shoot our baskets and live our lives. Ben Cohen, your book on the subject is called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. You're still here. Congrats on the book. Thank you. I can't believe I wrote a whole book on this. I really should have just released that YouTube video and tried to make (laughs) money that way. If you watch that video, Ben, of LeBron scoring 16 points in two minutes, or you watch Zion Williamson make four threes in a row, or Clay Thompson score 37 and a quarter, it seems unfathomable to suggest that the hot hand doesn't exist. And if you talk to players, they'll all tell you that the hot hand exists. Yes, that's right. And uh, if you were to ask me, given my uh, experience playing terrible JV basketball about 15 years ago, in one quarter of one game, I scored more points than I had in my entire career combined. I would have told you that the hot hand existed as well. Not until I read that 1985 paper, which is really... um, this classic paper in the canon of behavioral economics because of what it found, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. Now, something amazing kind of happened after that paper came out, which is that it was so unbelievable that many people just simply refused to believe it. You know, we'd all felt the hot hand, we'd seen the hot hand for ourselves. And now here were these brilliant psychologists coming along telling us there was no such thing. But as you mentioned, some of this has changed in recent years. And this is really why I wrote the book, because It was just really alluring to me on a story level to have something we all thought to be true, only to be told that it wasn't, 
only to realize that maybe it actually was. And that is, you know, what I really wanted to explore while writing. Well, what was the evolution? What were the first signs that people, while respecting the original work, were having second thoughts academically in terms of the study? Not like asking Reggie Miller how he made, you know, scored all those points to beat the Knicks at once, but on a serious intellectual level, raising concerns about the Academy's perception about this research and the existence of the hot hand. I've always considered my conversations with Reggie Miller to be serious intellectual exercises. I don't know about you, but um, (laughs) what has happened uh, in recent years is that, you know, ever since this first paper came out, there have been hundreds of papers that called it into question and went looking for the hot hand because those authors too believed that like there had to be such a thing. And if only there were data to actually show that. Now there is some of that data. So the first real paper to come out that changed my mind about this came out in 2014. And it was from a team of Harvard undergraduates. So not grad students, not PhD students, not professors, but you know, kids in their college dorm. And what they were able to do was get data from the high-resolution tracking cameras in every NBA arena. This is this system that is known as SportView, um, and it has kind of changed the way that NBA teams can do data analysis. And the reason that all of this is so important is that we all know that when someone has the hot hand, it warps the behavior of everybody around them, right? You have the radio announcer calling for LeBron to take a heat check. Everybody knows that LeBron is shooting. His teammates, him, the defense, most important, right? And so what happens when you are hot is you take harder shots, you take riskier shots, longer shots, just crazier shots that probably have a low probability of actually going in, right? And what you are finally able to do with this work through data is control for that shift in probability. And this first paper showed that when you actually control for that shift, and when you take all of these variables into account when someone has the hot hand, you are not less likely to make your next shot, you're actually slightly more likely. Now, this is not the huge exaggerated fireball of our imagination that comes from NBA Jam, but it shows that maybe we weren't crazy for all of those years to think that there was such a thing. The access and the ability to have more data is what sort of buttressed the argument that there is a hot hand, essentially? Yeah, essentially. And the the curious thing about that is that the 1985 paper about the hot hand actually used the best data that was available back then. The data just wasn't very good. But the reason they were able to write that paper in the first place was that they got uh, the data from the Philadelphia 76ers. They had this unusual statistician at the time named Harvey Pollack, who was actually known as Superstat. And in the early 1980s, he was the only person in the NBA who was keeping track of shots in the order in which they were taken. So chronology of shots. This seems like really primitive, and it is now, but at the time, it was cutting edge. And that is actually the data that buttresses the first paper about the hot hand. So this data that is available now just simply wasn't available to Gilovich, Valona, and Tversky in like their wildest, nerdiest, wonkiest dreams, or else they would have used it because they did at the time. The funny thing about this is that you have the it's, – it's part of this genre of economists – or, you know, social scientists telling us that everything we think we know about the world is wrong. And it's funny to imagine if this paper had never been written, would we have all just gone along thinking that the thing that was right was was actually right and we would have been right? I mean, it, it's also part of this genre like Tim McCarver was kind of ridiculed as the, you know, old player who didn't know what he was talking about, who was just yammering 
in the announcer's booth. And one of the things he talked about was the importance of pitch framing. And Rob Nyer has talked about this sabermetrically inclined ESPN writer saying that he thought McCarver was full of it. And then it turned out decades you know, later that McCarver was totally right and pitch framing was super important. And so there's been maybe this larger trend in sports of athletes and their observations about what happens when they play being kind of poo-pooed and dismissed. And then maybe when we have better tools and are better able to see what they can actually experience, then it turns out they were right. I think that's interesting and it's probably right. I mean, I think the thing that is curious to me about the hot hand and the reason I wrote the book is that I think that reasonable people can still sort of disagree about it, right? Like there are very smart people on both sides of this debate. And, you know, all of these papers that have looked at the hot hand, I think are really admirable. Like even if that 1985 paper is not quite as right as we once thought it was, and maybe shouldn't be the sensation that we always thought it was, it's still really interesting. Like they did find something that I think is true, right? Which is that we do see patterns where they don't exist and we invent causes to explain them sometimes. And we should be cognizant of that. So, you know, I I think part of the fun of the hot hand and really um, the mystery of it is that we can kind of toy with these ideas for ourselves and figure out where we land. Some parts of this book you might agree with, other parts you might not agree with, but I think that's the whole fun of playing with the idea. Well, and the idea is so, so ingrained in how we think about sports and how we process sports. And one of the uh, anecdote sequences that I, I really liked in the book, and I think this was in the excerpt in the Wall Street Journal that we'll link to on on the show page, is your examination of the creation of NBA Jam, which you mentioned it a little earlier, and how the hot hand was deliberately sort of embedded in the game, and then in subsequent games that the same game designer produced, and how it influenced Steph Curry. You draw mm. this direct line between NBA Jam, Hot Hand, Steph Curry, oh, I can make these shots, I have the hot hand, basketball has changed forever. That's right. The designer of NBA Jam is a guy named Mark Trammell, who was this prodigy video game designer. And when he was growing up, there were three things that he loved. He loved basketball, and he loved video games, and he loved fire. He was actually a bit of a pyromaniac. And what happened when he grew up was that he combined his three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his life. So when I grew up playing NBA Jam, and I am almost exactly the same age as Steph. He's about two months older than I am. So I understand his frame of reference. Like NBA Jam was everywhere when we were growing up. Like It would have been very hard if you were a basketball fan to not play NBA Jam, let alone if you were a basketball fan whose dad happened to play in the NBA and was in NBA Jam. So like, of course, Steph played NBA Jam. We all did. But what I did not realize when playing NBA Jam is that it was one of the most lucrative, successful video games ever made. It made like a billion dollars in quarters in its first year of existence. Like everybody was obsessed with NBA Jam. And what I think is that Mark Trammell single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds into believing that there was such a thing as the hot hand. Like, of course, if you take three shots in a row and make them, you're going to make your next shot. And I think the cool thing is that, like, you know, not only does Stephen Curry believe in the hot hand, he actually behaves as if he believes in the hot hand, which is what everybody in the NBA does. And I tell the story in the book about a game against the New York Knicks in February 2013, in which a few amazing things happened. Steph Curry scored 54 points, which is the most points he scored to this day. Um, he made 11 of his 13 three-pointers. He played all 48 minutes. It was kind of the game that was the epiphany 
for him, for the Warriors, for the fate of the whole NBA. And maybe the most amazing thing that happened uh, in this game is that Steph Curry scored 54 points and the New York Knicks actually won. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And Mark Jackson was his coach. You talk a little bit about how circumstance has a lot to do with it. I don't mind if you would tell people a little bit about how it came to be that Steph ended up having the green light that night because that was actually sort of fascinating to me too because, I mean, he'd been on the team and you mentioned in the book that before that night in Madison Square Garden, he had averaged only 18 points a game. Is that right? Yeah, he was like fine, right? He had this amazing run at Davidson that we all remember. For most of his life, the through line of his basketball career was that people just didn't really believe that he could be as great as we now know him to be. Now, if if you were to ask him, like, did you know that you were going to get hot in the garden that night? He would say, no, of course not. Like, And the circumstances of that game were very bizarre. So the Warriors played in Indiana the night before. They got into a fight that that Steph actually has a role in. If you go back and watch the video clip, he's pretty involved in the fight. The problem is that he charges Roy Hibbert, and Roy Hibbert is seven foot two and weighs a lot more than Steph Curry weighs, and he kind of just brushes him aside, like like he doesn't even belong. And so for his entire life, Steph Curry's great disadvantage had been his size, right? He was too small uh, to really be a star basketball player. However, for this one night, it was his improbable advantage because he wasn't big enough to do damage in a fight of NBA players. So the Warriors fly to New York that night. They wake up. A couple of their teammates have been suspended. Steph Curry has been fined $35,000 and never has anyone been so fortunate to lose so much money. The Warriors are down a few players. They have no choice but to sort of unleash Steph Curry. He ends up playing 48 minutes that night. He does not come out of the game, which seems impossible now, given the way that NBA players have their loads managed, right? And they and they generally play between like 30 and 36 minutes. Here is a regular season game in February in which Steph school plays all 48 minutes. But the most incredible thing about all of this to me is that Steph Curry was always on the second bus from the Warriors team hotel on road trips. In that game, for a reason he can't remember, he takes the third bus, which he says he never does. And what happens when the third bus pulls out of the team hotel, it gets pulled over by New York City cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. So he's on the wrong bus. The bus gets pulled over. It's late. His warm-up routine is rushed. He says he has no idea when the hot hand is going to happen, where it's going to happen, why it's going to happen, or how it's going to happen. But once it does happen, he understands that you have to embrace it, which I think is a really fascinating way to think about it. Once it does happen, you have to embrace it. Every game since then, he's made sure that the bus gets pulled over by New York City cops. You can't, you can't mess with success. Uh, Joel, question for you. So we think of the hot hand in terms of basketball shooting. It's the most intuitive. And also, it's, you know, we see it in these games like with Steph or LeBron or Clay. Did you feel like in football there could be such a thing as a hot hand for a running back? Does that concept transfer in all sorts of realms of sports experience? Yeah, I think there definitely can be moments when you feel something, where you feel a little different, that the game is moving slower and you're sort of feeling your way through it. And I mean, I'm not, by no means was I a great athlete, but since Ben had his junior varsity, you know, basketball story to tell, I mean, you know, I've played in football games before without, as a running back, where I was like, oh, wow, I just feel like 
no matter where I go, no matter what I do, I'm going to be able to find the hole. Give me the ball. I, you know, it's I'm just a, it's a give me yeah, the ball. Give me the ball. In fact, there was a game. I guess I could be Al Bundy for a second here. At our homecoming game, <laughs> we were down by two touchdowns. And I told the coach on the sideline, I was like, hey, man, give me the ball. I got about like 20 carries in the second half, and we won. We you know, ran for close to you know, 200 yards. You know, I was bugging a little bit. So anyway, but yes, but in, in that moment, I, that's nothing that I would have never done, like in and of myself. I was never the kind of person that would ask the coach to give me the ball for whatever reason. But in that moment, that night, I felt like I was in a zone. That's the only way that I can describe it. And like my memories of that night are not very vivid. I just felt like I was very dull, numb, and just you know, the game just kind of came to me. And so, yeah, so when Ben was talking about having that moment in junior varsity basketball, you know, that anything I threw up, it was going to go in. That's the same thing. And then you hear running backs talk about that all the time, or you hear a quarterback even say, you know, look, I, I'm making throws tonight that I wouldn't normally be able to make. Or it, even if you run track, like there'll be a time that you, you'll go through a run, you know, and you're just like, well, this feels different. My, my body feels like it's beyond you know, it's capabilities. For right. Them, and so. I think what you said, Joel, you mentioned the word zone and Ben, the hot hand really is this psychological state. It's this place where you believe that you can do something because you are so attuned to the moment and there's an overlapping influence. Is that what you discovered? And is that what the research has, has shown? Clearly there is a psychological change that happens, right? I, I write a little bit in the book about flow states, but whatever you want to call it, like we do feel that. However, I, I want to ask you a question, Steph, because I know that you are just dying to tell us your Scrabble hot hand story over there. So let us have it. My personal favorite hot hand story is actually kicking a football. And I, I write about it in a few seconds of panic. It was in practice and I just made one at 30 and then 32 and then 34 and then 36 and then 38 and mm -hmm. 40. And I decided to stop because it was like, I am not blowing this moment. This is like, I am in the place I wanted to be for a year learning how to do this and I have achieved it now and it's time to walk away. That's the question I actually had for Ben is when you talk to athletes, do they say that when they realize that they're hot, that it stops? Is there something about understanding that you're in the zone that makes you fall out of the zone or does it vary by person? Well, I think for, for amateurs, it's like I've, for me, it was like, I'm not fucking with this. Like I made it to 40 or 42. And if I screw up now, it'll ruin the moment. But I think for professional athletes, for real athletes, for Joel athletes, you know, you, you want to keep going, I would think. No, Ben? Yeah, I think you do want to keep going. However, the terrible thing about the hot hand is that it ends, right? We all know that it ends. And that's, I think, why Steph Curry says you have to embrace it because, like, you know that this magical feeling is not going to last and you don't want to do anything to imperil it while it does last. I should say, like, the consequences of Steph Curry taking a shot from 35 feet when he feels hot, they're pretty low, right? Like, you miss the shot. That's the thing. And if you're missing the shot in a February game against the Knicks in Madison Square Garden, yeah. it's not a huge deal. Now, the psychologists who used basketball to study the hot hand were not only studying the hot hand, they were studying human behavior, but their work has great implications for many things beyond basketball. So in the book, I write about a farmer, actually, and an investor. If you believe in the hot hand when you are uh, making decisions about how to um, allocate your resources on a farm or how to invest your money, like there can be real consequences to that. It's not missing a shot. It's like betting the farm and yeah. losing and, and going broke. So I think it's important to think about like there are certain environments that allow for a hot hand and there are other environments in which believing in the hot hand can actively punish you. And 
I think the crucial distinction is one of control, like when you feel like you have agency versus when you're at the mercy of chance, really. But th- this is some of the stuff that's like important to think about, even if you do believe in the hot hand. Yeah, the implications here are wide ranging. And you write about Shakespeare in the book and a whole number of, of other things. People should check it out if they are into sports, which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast, or if you hate sports and listen to this podcast because you hate yourself, you will like the book as well. It's called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. It's by Ben Cohen. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. It'll make for excellent quarantine reading. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members in our goal to talk about LeBron James and every possible segment, we will discuss the Lakers' uh, big weekend. They beat the Bucks. And the Clippers are looking like the best team in the NBA. But are they really, truly? Do we believe that deep in our souls? We'll discuss. If you want to hear us talk about that and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up. It's just $35 for the first year at slate.com slash hangup plus. Big week in the Mecca. It all started last Monday at Madison Square Garden, where superfan Spike Lee showed up to watch his beloved Knicks play the very great and awesome Houston Rockets. Lee said that he used an interest on West 33rd Street for nearly 30 years, including as recently as the week before. And it's an entrance typically reserved for media, employees, and the disabled. But on this night, this last Monday, Lee was told he had to leave and re-enter somewhere else. Well, Lee didn't take too kindly to that, and it led to a heated confrontation. So here he is explaining what happened on ESPN's first take that next day. I've been using the same entrance for 28-plus years. The employee's entrance on 33rd Street. Yesterday, last night, I go in, my ticket gets scanned. I'm in. I walk, you know the elevator? Yes. I go in the elevator, an elevator, and also people have their ticket scanned also. And elevator's not moving. And the security guy comes to me and says, we need you to get off the elevator. I said, for what? So we, well, we could speak about it now. I said, I'm not getting out of the elevator. So it's another five minutes, then they finally send the elevator up because they know I'm not Get out the elevator. Get on the elevator. As you know, people don't know, the garden floor is on the fifth floor. Elevator go up to five, and security's waiting for you like it just ran out of Macy's stealing something. And they said, you, this guy, security guy, they're all, this comes from the top. He says, Mr. Lee, you have to leave Madison Square Garden. They wanted me to leave the garden Walk outside, that, out to 33rd Street, employee entrance where I came from, walk outside, and come back on 31st Street. Hmm. And I said, I'm not doing that. First of all, you scan my ticket. You can't scan a ticket twice. Also, I know that once you leave a sporting arena event, you can't come back in. So I don't trust these guys, so I'm not going for the okie doke. Also, why are you taking a perp walk? For what? Let me just get I, in. Hold on, let me, let me finish. Okay. So I said, I'm not leaving. Then I, and then they said, we want you to leave the garden. I put my hands behind my back and I said, arrest me like my brother, Charles Oakley. Then I got that guy. There's some brothers I know. I grew up in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Has Spike, man, butter, 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 butter. Mm. They said, Spike, this is some crazy stuff. But if we take you in the elevator and go to the sixth floor, that outside the garden, go up to the sixth floor, we'll walk you to your seat. I said, bet. So at halftime, Dola comes over to me and says, we need to talk. I said, talk about what? 
We need to talk. I said, Mr. Dolan, I don't want to talk about nothing. I've been coming through this entrance for 28 years. Plus, Wednesday, historic event, the world's most famous arena, Masquerade Garden. They had a Broadway. They took The Killer Mockingbird mm -hmm. and had a performance for 18,000 New York City public kids. Amazing event. Where did I go in? The employee entrance. That was Wednesday. So if they want to change this whole new policy talk about, and at first, they never said when the thing changed. So why not call me? When, I, if, when my, my deposits are due for this astronomical price for Nick tickets, and I'm one day late, my phone is ringing off the hook. <laughs> uh, I, that kills me every time I hear it. Spike eventually made it to his courtside seat that night. And at one point, he shook hands with Nick's owner, James Dolan, a gesture shown in a photograph that was tweeted through the Nick's public relations account the following day. And it was accompanied by a statement that read, he is welcome to come to the garden anytime via the VIP entrance, just not through our employee entrance, which is what he and Jim agreed to last night when they shook hands. That set Spike off, and that's why he was at ESPN the next day. Now he says he won't go for the rest of the season, of which there probably isn't much left, possibly because of coronavirus, but also because the Knicks are probably going to miss the playoffs for the seventh straight year. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah right. I, yeah. Hey, we never know. Yeah. Anything is possible. R.J. Barrett's a nice-looking rookie. Things aren't great in Brooklyn either, as the Nets head coach Kenny Atkinson and the Nets agreed to mutually part ways on Saturday. Atkinson had been with the Nets since 2016, compiling a record of 118 and 190. That's a bad record, and it's also misleading because he generally became widely known as one of the better coaches in the league, especially after last season when he led the starless Nets to a 42-40 and 40 record in a playoff berth. That was enough to convince star free agents Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to sign with the Nets in the offseason, heralding a new era of hoop in Brooklyn. Well, now look at them. Durant hasn't played all year. He's still recovering from Achilles surgery. Kyrie's out for the year with a shoulder injury and missed most of the year. The Nets are 28 and 34, better than they have any right to be, but still a disappointment. And now they've lost their coach. Josh, which fan would you least want to be a fan <laughs> of right now with the Nets or the Knicks? Watching Spike on first take was really interesting because he kept invoking his childhood and the fact that his dad would take him to games. And he named, you know, players like Walt Frazier and, you know, Bill Bradley, but also more obscure guys that I had never heard of, just to kind of express his bona fides as a Knicks fan. He was in the stands for the Willis-Reed game in 1970, like all of the stuff. And the point that he was trying to make was the team belongs to the fans, James Dolan or nobody else, no matter how horribly it's mismanaged, they can't take that away from me. And he's a Brooklyn guy, but he says he's not going to move over to the Nets because he's always rooted for the Knicks. And you know, on the one hand, it's admirable and it, there's a truth to it that the owner shouldn't really influence your feelings about a team. On the other hand, as Max Kellerman, I think, pointed out, Spike has given them about $10 million in season ticket money <laughs> over the years. And if you're telling an owner or a franchise, no matter what you do, I'm going to be loyal to you, then... That's not exactly a great message to send either. And so 
back to your question, Joel, I think I'd rather be a Nets fan in the in the short term until Dolan sells the team because we do have these kind of childhood memories and associations that lock us in and lock us down to franchises that are horribly mismanaged, even if we're not personally maligned or impugned by the owner of the team. Yeah. It's hard to overcome your childhood associations, though. And Lee is about as admirable as anyone has ever been to have stuck with this team for the last, you know, 20 years, basically, while they have sucked and been mismanaged. It's not just the sucking. It's that they've been embarrassing. It is fascinating to me, just back to the money thing, that he's the most famous fan in the NBA, I think, now that Jack Nicholson is not going to the Lakers games any longer. And apparently he's paying full price for his tickets. They have him paying $300,000 a year. You would think that he didn't pay for tickets. That would have been my assumption. Yeah. I don't even want to get into that, but I I was kind of surprised that, like, I guess this is a testament to how much money Spike Lee makes every year that he could just blow 300000 of it. I was kind of surprised, right? Wow, really? Spike Lee can afford to spend $10 million on mixed tickets over 30 years. That's amazing. Yeah, right. Good for him. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's funny. He mentioned Charles Oakley in that clip there, and they interviewed Charles Oakley, and Oakley said something to the effect that the Knicks are like a plantation. And he said that, well, they don't have to convince James Dolan to sell they could strip him of ownership like they did Donald Sterling right. and the Clippers. And I was like, that's really interesting. It's a little bit crazy in some ways because James Dolan hasn't necessarily done anything to have his team taken from him. But it is something that you would think the NBA would want to nudge him out of there, right? Well, I think, that, I think that this has come up with Adam Silver and David Stern before him. I mean, I know it's come up. There have been stories about requests being made or the league actually looking into the behavior of Dolan and his management of the franchise. I mean, it's not that different from you know, financial mismanagement in, in other franchises, whether it's the Wilpons in New York and how they've been pressured to find a buyer for this team. These leagues aren't dumb. Adam Silver knows that having a functional franchise in New York would improve the overall state of the NBA. It's not as important as maybe it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but having a good team in New York would really be a terrific thing for any sports league. Nobody wants the team in New York to suck. It's horrible for the NBA. And, and, you know, the reason that Kevin Durant went to the Nets or Kyrie Irving went to the Nets is because the Knicks are such a disaster. Yeah, Joel, I don't even mean suck on the court. I mean suck as a franchise and be embarrassing, be a drain on fandom and public perception of the NBA because it does rub off when the owner of this $5 billion asset has mismanaged it so grossly on and off the court for so long. There's nothing more hilarious you know that it's going to be great when you see uh, the news that the Knicks have released a statement. Like when the Knicks have re- when the Knicks have released a statement is like an event. Then you know that something has gone terribly wrong. I mean, the Charles Oakley thing was he's like a franchise legend, kind of the heart and soul of the franchise, and he gets in an argument with security, and they they bring him out in, in handcuffs. Like these are the things that happen with the Knicks, and they bring in Steve Stout and Leon Rose to kind of reshape or refashion 
the franchise. I think it was Steve Stout went on first take and is talking about like he is basically running the player personnel department or implies that he is. And then it turns out that that's not true. So even when they try to like do things that'll make them more appealing to fans or more appealing to players, that turns out to be a disaster. And everything just goes back to ownership, Joel. Like there's no solution here. There's no like people that you can hire or bring in that are going to turn this thing around if you don't change ownership. It's interesting because I think if you like, so we, if we had to believe NBA legend, the way that Patrick Ewing got to the Knicks, that there's the belief that there was some nefarious lottery ball chicanery going on that ended up with Patrick Ewing ending up at the Knicks. And I, I kind of go back to your guy, Zion. Like, what if Zion had ended up with the Knicks? I'm trying to think, would it have been a disaster or would it have been a great thing? Because the belief for a year or so was that the Knicks were in position to draft Zion. They had enough opportunities in the lottery to get him that, he, you know, they were one of the top two or three teams that had a shot to get him and they ended up third. But if Zion had ended up at the Knicks, man, it makes me wonder if there would have been more of a push to get Dolan out of there because that is an asset that you cannot waste. You can't waste Zion in the league with the ownership and management like that. And I just wonder if that had gone differently, that the Knicks would have gotten everything that they wanted instead of nothing right now. It's a really great point. Yeah, that would have been fascinating to see. And with the Nets, you have a new owner there, Josai, and you have a coach, as you noted in your intro, who is respected by pretty much everyone in the league. And we had thought that it was respected by players as well as, you know, other coaches and, and writers did lead the Nets to this 42 and 40 record last year, built the fabled culture that all teams want to build and that allowed the Nets to, you know, be an attractive destination for Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And now the reports suggest that it was the players, it was the star players who didn't want Atkinson there, who decided that that they wanted another coach. And there is, it seems like, this recurring conflict in the league where you have a set of teams, I think it was Kevin Arnovitz who said this on the Zach Lowe podcast, you have teams that are quote unquote cute stories, ones that overachieve, ones that don't have stars that get bounced in the first round or maybe the second round of the playoffs if they're lucky. And they play well and they pass the ball and, you know, they're they're fan favorites and we love to watch them play and they don't ever win in the end because they don't have the stars. And then you have the teams that have LeBron James or the teams that have Kevin Durant and there are the teams that end up winning. And maybe you don't need the cute story or the good culture, you know, the analytics people really love and respect. What you need is the coach that gets along with LeBron or that gets along with KD. And it seems like maybe those things came in conflict here in Brooklyn. Well, isn't, isn't, isn't that an argument, Joel, that's been made before in the NBA, that these are grown-ass men and that what they need isn't a motivator of talent, but someone to let them know that they are respected and implement schemes and play design that players are on board with? Yeah, well, Kenny Atkinson is known as a good player development guy. Right. I don't think he's like a— right. He's not like a John Beeline where he's telling them that they suck and that they need to, you know, play harder. Right. So it's that balance between developing the younger players but knowing how to get along with the with the veteran players. Right. Yeah. I guess that's sort of the the thing is though is we're talking about two notorious, um, like not curmudgeons, but people that that out not even cancers, but they're guys that have 
are difficult to get along with. I mean, Kyrie lasted in Boston for one season for a reason. Could you imagine being quarantined with Kyrie Irving? Well, first of all, (laughs) what would his theories be about what was causing the coronavirus? That could be interesting. But Kyrie Irving is maybe the most notorious guy in the league as far as being somebody that is hard to get along with, that is weird, and that wants things to be kind of catered around him. Right. And Kevin Durant, I mean, he's a guy, he obviously had a lot of success with the Golden State Warriors, but I think it's fair to say that ultimately their time together was a disappointment and that he didn't seem fulfilled at all by what should have been the ideal basketball situation in the history of basketball, and it still didn't work out. And so when he comes to the well, Nets and it looks like it out. does. <laughs> worked well, out. I mean, worked out. Yeah, it worked out. Does he seem happy for having the success that he had? I guess that's a different question. That's a different question. Who can define happiness, really? That's fair point. That's fair. That's fair. What that's is fair. what is joy? What really? is happy? Who who's to say? But in the NBA, it's like one of the realms in human experience where I, I'm not saying that Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant are assholes, but in the situation where a star player is an asshole, they're gonna get their way even if they're wrong. And even if they're wrong, they might end up being right if the metric we're judging it by is winning championships. Like, you're not going to win a championship with unhappy superstars. There's no such thing as a great culture with unhappy superstars. And, you know, LeBron won uh, with Ty Lue. LeBron, you know, won with Eric Spolstra, too. So it's not like they don't respect a guy who didn't play in the NBA, even though that is often what's said that, oh, LeBron isn't going to want to play with Frank Vogel. Jason Kidd is just going to take over at some point. That's not necessarily true. And it's just hard for us to know without having access to locker rooms and without having access to reporting on how these players actually feel, like when the resentments are going to come up and how these things are going to shake out. Well, what's especially curious in this case is that Kyrie Irving played 20 games this year and he's done for the season after having surgery last week. And Kevin Durant, obviously, was not playing at all this year. So whatever was happening there, and like you just said, Joss, we really don't know, and reporting would help shake this out. Was it a combination of these two guys that aren't on the court forcing out the coach? Was it some other factor, other players that Atkinson wasn't reaching, wasn't getting along with? We just don't know right now, and it just seems incredibly weird and strange. And back to the question about which team you would rather support and root for. Like The obvious answer is the Nets, but on the other hand, the Nets have been kind of this empty vessel, right? Joel, I mean, they were rebranded when they moved to Brooklyn. They got the great court, though. They have the great court. Um, They play Biggie on the PA. Who wouldn't want to play there? But they're just kind of creating this franchise out of nothing, essentially, and trying to appeal to fans and trying to appeal to players. And it all just feels kind of subject to change on a moment's notice. There is no kind of bedrock whether that bedrock is good or bad, there's just like nothing that exists there. It just feels like it's in a constant state of like flux and trying to convince us that it's real and solid and that they're building something there and and maybe they're not. I actually am not sure that I would rather be a Nets fan because like you said, I mean, they don't have 
a history or a there there that you can sort of grab onto and make you feel like, oh, this team has a, like a legacy and a history and something that like you want to root for. Maybe this is because this is my childhood and my first experience with the NBA championship came against the Knicks when the Knicks actually meant something in the NBA, right? And I've read about Walt Frazier, Dick Barnett, and all these guys. And like that does mean something. And if you've ever watched a game at Madison Square Garden, it is different. I was sort of skeptical of that until I actually went and watched the game there for myself. And you didn't even know that because you watched other NBA players and how they light up and the experience they talk about playing there. So it does mean something a little bit different to be a Knicks fan. The way I think about it is that the Knicks are always sort of starting from the ground up. The reason I think people sort of still invest in them is that like, they never get beyond the foundation. Like it's all, They've never really built a home there, but there's always a chance for something else. I feel like the Nets have maybe sort of cast their lot with a couple of dudes who, I mean, we got one guy that's coming off of a very serious injury and another who's a well-known locker room cancer who hasn't shown that he can lead a team on his own. So I'm not quite sure that it's that clear cut. I might rather be a Knicks fan than a Nets fan, even right now. Yeah, well, no one should be staking their fandom on the likability and behavior of owners, and that that's a problem here. I mean, Joe Tsai... Seems to be an improvement over the Russian oligarch, Prokhorov. But Joe Tsai also was the guy that basically threw Daryl Morey under the bus and threw out the party line that we need to be respectful to China about what's going on in Hong Kong. Um, so pick your poison, but, you know, maybe just sit it out and decide in 2023 which team you should support. The Rockets, of course. <laughs> now it is time for Afterballs and Spike Lee. Let's get back to him for a minute. He really made his imprint on the NBA with those commercials with Michael Jordan. The character was Mars Blackman and uh, was based on Spike Lee's character, Mars Blackman, from the film She's Gotta Have It. Joel, you were telling us when we were not rolling that you saw She's Gotta Have It, which came out in 1986 when you were a small child. Yeah, yes, I did. And School Days. I was a big Spike Lee fan and a fan of uh, simulated sex as a preteen. So. <laughs> and you said that your parents did not explain to you what the it was and she's got to have it? Yeah, no. I just saw, basically, it wasn't a rom-com, but I just I just said, oh, this is a movie of romance and people dating. I didn't, <laughs> didn't kind of connect all that together until much later. But I think that's probably where my parents thought it was sort of harmless for me to watch because, like, who can at eight or nine years old, sort of wrap their mind around what's happening there on, on the screen, you know? A romance. I like that. So Mars Blackman, character, and she's got to have a character in Nike commercials featuring Michael Jordan and our afterball namesake. Stefan, what is your Mars Blackman? Apologies for missing this last month, but my old Denver Broncos teammate, Jay Cutler, had some thoughts about my favorite sport, team handball. Let's listen. I do want to get a team together um, for the Olympics. They have like a, it's I think it's handball, but it's basically yes. like a little ball that you throw around and then throw into a goal. So it's like soccer, yes. indoor soccer with a ball that you throw. Oh, you should play that. You'd be a right? very good handball. Player. That would be so sick if you started. If you like, there's a, there's a, a U.S. team, but like I want to go and do that. Yes, you should just throwing missiles. I think if it was you, Patrick Mahomes, and LeBron. Just uh, how many players play in handball? Like eight on uh, sure. a single time. So if it was you three against eight players from any other country, I think we win. I think we. I guarantee we can put a team together that can win gold. Yes, guarantee. I would absolutely agree with that. 
Yeah, yeah. Just, just from pure like arm speed. I don't think yeah. guys in other countries... And just a really big guy as a goalie back right. there. Pure arm speed. Throwing missiles. Jay Cutler offered up those scorchingly uninformed handball thoughts on Pardon My Take, the podcast, in late January. For the record, there are seven players on a handball team, not eight, and the goalkeepers are not big old slow dudes. Uh, Cutler's comments blew up because this is perfect sports chud catnip. Pardon My Take interviewed a former Spanish national team player, which went about as you'd expect it would go, but it was reasonably respectful, and they drafted a team of former guests. Dan Lebitard played the Cutler clip on ESPN's highly questionable panelist Dominique Foxworth, who also was on my Broncos team. The 2006 Denver Broncos have strong opinions about team handball. Dominique Foxworth weighed in. I'm sorry if it's disrespectful to handballers everywhere, but I've watched that game before and I feel like it's not like this is soccer and it's just not a big deal here. I'm sure handball is a big deal somewhere, but no one is an eight-year-old is like, I want to play handball. You know who plays handball? The people who couldn't make it in soccer, couldn't make it in football, wow. couldn't make it in basketball. So I know it's completely disrespectful to all it handballers really out there, really but I don't care. Are be in your oh, yeah, all eight of them are going to be in my mention. Yeah. So me... Jay Cutler and LeBron okay. will go me, win a handball championship. Me, All of this contrived Americanness predictably aroused the handball community. A handball goat, Nicola Karabatic of France, tweeted at Cutler and Foxworth, I'd be glad to give you my Olympic gold medal if you beat my team. A top German club invited Cutler to come train. Luka Doncic of the Mavs, who played some handball growing up in Slovenia, tweeted at Foxworth, no chance. People don't know how hard it is to play handball. I especially enjoyed an episode of the Uninformed Handball Hour, a podcast hosted by three Irish international handball players. Here's one of them making fun of Jay Cutler. After coming all the way back from the, the European Championship, where I saw people put their bodies on the line, playing games two days in a row, giving it their all, and then some guy whose name I only heard before—I've never actually seen, never seen, neither seen—I wouldn't, I wouldn't have recognised his face, Jay, Jay Cutler, saying that as these people walk around throwing a small little ball, could you imagine me unleashing missiles? I was just like, oh my god, where is this going here? And here's how he described the "Pardon My Take" episode. Two donks sitting on a couch talking to Jay Cutler. Two donks sitting on a couch talking to Jay Cutler would indeed have been an excellent title for that show. The Irish dudes sounded mostly sad that a relatively famous athlete in America's most popular sport would ignorantly diss their own sport. For the record, I would not now and did not when we did this on this podcast in 2011 draft Jay Cutler for my USA Team Handball Dream Team. I do think that a younger Dominique Foxworth could have been an excellent handball player. A spokeswoman for the USA Team Handball Federation said it tried to get Foxworth to work out with a local DC team. I'm there if that does go down. As it happens, a dozen or so current and retired NFL players were in Hungary last week with a charitable group founded by NFL players called American Football Without Barriers that spreads the gospel of the gridiron around the world. Todd Gurley of the Rams, Kenny Moore of the Colts, former name of the year Barkevius Mingo of the Texans. They were all there. And guess what they did? They practiced and played with a handball team in Budapest. There's video, and based on what I saw, 
Nikola Karabatic's gold medal is safe, dribbling and passing a little ball and leaping in a clutch of defenders to shoot it at a small goal are not, the video confirms, instantly transferable athletic skills. I talked to Gary Barnage, one of the founders of American Football Without Barriers, who played tight end for the Panthers and the Browns from 2008 to 16. He admitted that the handball workout was tough, But he also said that because the game combines the quick bursts of football, the constant movement of basketball, the throwing of baseball, and the conditioning and ball movement of soccer, American athletes could easily be good. He's right. We've talked about this before, except for the easily part. It would take years to train pre-existing top athletes to play handball well. Fortunately, though, we have years, eight years The 2028 Olympics are in L.A. The U.S. handball team automatically qualifies. Sure, Jake Cutler will be 45 then, but I'm sure he'll still be firing missiles. Thank you for unintentionally explaining my favorite headline of last week, which was Barkevius Mingo fires cannon in Hungary. I didn't know why he was in Hungary, and I still don't know why he was firing a cannon, but at least part of that mystery is solved. It wasn't firing handballs. That was not cannon-like on the court. I watched the video. Unrelated. Joel, what is your Mars Blackman? Hopefully you were reading Slate.com earlier this week and came across a post written by Sam Rikulov about chart-topping Houston rapper Megan V with two E's, Stallion, and her lawsuit against former Major League Baseball player Carl Crawford. The story is about how Megan filed a lawsuit against the record label for which Crawford is the CEO. And it's a pretty standard music industry dispute. A rising music artist accuses their record label of essentially trapping them in a bad deal. And the star of the story is Megan, probably best known for popularizing the term Hot Girl Summer, which happened last year, and she just dropped a new EP on Friday. You can Google her, cue her up on Spotify, and follow her on Instagram, and get a pretty quick sense of why she's become a star. It figures that no matter what happens with her lawsuit, Megan V with two E's, Stallion, will be around for a while. But Carl Crawford, he's actually been around for a while, And as a native Texan, I just want to relish in his brief high school football career for a moment. Let's start back in the Fifth Ward of Houston, where he was born and raised. And if you can't tell by the name, because rarely does a nice neighborhood get tagged with the term ward, it was a rough area. Crawford pulled off something, in retrospect, that seems impossible today. He stopped then Jefferson Davis High School on the north side of Houston from becoming a national punchline. For years, Davis High School fielded football teams worthy of its namesake. From 1985 to 1993, Jefferson Davis lost every single football game that it played. That was a national record 80 consecutive losses. Within two years, Davis was in the playoffs. That was Cross's freshman year on the football team. And he was the quarterback. And he was more of a runner than a thrower, allegedly running a 4.2 40-yard dash. In his senior year, he had 20 plays of more than 50 yards. And the powerhouse of the day was convinced that he could do the same thing in college, Nebraska. It was then Cornhuskers coach Frank Solich that signed him and fully expected Carl Crawford to compete and beat out Bobby Newcomb and eventual Heisman Trophy winner Eric Crouch for the starting job. But alas, it wasn't meant to be. Crawford entered the Major League Baseball draft in 1999 and was a second-round pick of the Tampa Bay Rays. 
That launched a career where he was a four-time All-Star, and it ended in 2016 when the Dodgers designated him for assignment with about $35 million remaining on his contract. But it's hard not to think about what might have become of Carl if he hadn't stuck with football. Even Frank Solich thinks about it sometimes. In a recent interview with ESPN, Solich, now the coach at Ohio University, said he thought Crawford could have been a star there. Quote, we thought he could really fit everything we wanted to do. In fact, his ability would have allowed us to do a number of great things, Solich said. Solich said this as he had a guy who won a Heisman Trophy winner. Keep that in mind. So that said, the one thing that Crawford couldn't do that he supposedly could, play basketball at UCLA. For years, there's been all these stories that Crawford had a scholarship offer to play basketball at UCLA under Steve Lavin. It's even in his Wikipedia page today. It's not true. And way back in 2012, not long after he signed with the Dodgers, Crawford tried to correct the narrative. He said UCLA never offered him, though it's understandable why people believe that they did. Crawford could seemingly do anything. He was a great high school quarterback, an all-star baseball player, and now apparently a hell of a hip-hop talent scout. And let's just hope that this former hot boy of summer can reach a reasonable agreement with the hot girl of last summer. Carl Crawford, man, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't know that he didn't have a scholarship at UCLA. No, yeah, he didn't. Any story that tries to sum up his athletic career, it said he had a scholarship offered UCLA. It's like, nah, it didn't happen. Now I will never make the mistake that I didn't realize that I didn't ever make. That is our show for today. Our producer this week filling in for Melissa Kaplan is Rosemary Belson. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked about the red hot, the hot handed Los Angeles Lakers. Hey, Joel, do you think that this was sort of the top of the sign curve for LeBron's regular season? And now it's time to start preparing for the playoffs? Well, they have an insurmountable lead, so yeah. Right, so is it time to (laughs) to load management and let's just get to the second or third round of the playoffs? That's probably the right thing to do. But man, to Josh's point earlier, they are a disaster when he's not there. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.